I guess you were right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what Christmas is all about, ABC, PBS, those who are going to be showing that for the 56th year in a row, they'll be showing that exact video, and that message of hope will be shared on national TV. A lot of times we forget what Christmas is all about. We get wrapped up in the commercialism, and as a matter of fact, we like to watch Christmas movies at our house, and that one right there is probably one of my favorites. And as we watch it and as you see it, and hopefully you get to watch it on YouTube, I have no idea if they're going to block us for that. I tried to look for copyright stuff, but I have no idea. So I apologize if you're watching online and they just cut you out. But in it, like I said, we like to watch the Christmas movies. And I think the reason why that one there is probably one of my favorites is because there's this fight in Charlie Brown about the commercialism of Christmas, about the way that people are living out Christmas, about people, the way that they're living out their lives and they're missing what Christmas is all about. And a lot of times we, we forget that Christmas is all about Jesus, but it's not just about Jesus on Christmas Day. Every day before Christmas Day and every day after Christmas Day is all about Jesus. And it's something we have to remember, something we have to live for, something we have to strive for as we look at it. And the best part as we look at it all is it really it has always been all about Jesus. As a matter of fact, in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says these words, in the beginning, from the very beginning, was the Word, and it's always been about Him. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it from the beginning it's always been about him and then he put on flesh it says in verse 14 of, of john chapter 1 it says the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us we observed his glory the glory as the one and only son from the father full of grace and truth as we sing hark the herald angels sing glory to that newborn king all glory is his we lifted him up in it all it wasn't a part of this version of 
Hark the herald angels sing, but if you sing the original uh, traditional version, it says these words. It says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. You know what it means, incarnate? That flesh wrapped around. I got to take Maylee, my uh, oldest daughter, to a concert on Friday night and see Danny Goki and Natalie Grant do a Christmas concert. And it was so great. And afterwards, we went and grabbed some dinner. And we stopped by this little hole-in-the-wall taco place over about Montano and Coors. And uh, uh, I got a carne asada burrito. And it was amazing, by the way. Um, and uh, it might be making you hungry right now. But it was huge. And it was this big old massive thing. And as I was thinking of the word carne it just means meat it means flesh and if you're a vegetarian or a vegan i apologize for what i'm saying now but it tasted great and it was an amazing thing but when we look at that word incarnate it means flesh that the god of the universe put on flesh he wrapped himself in flesh for you and for me not just for us to be able to get to go to heaven but to be able to see his glory to see it in front of our eyes, to experience it and see the way the world has changed because of it and then you to live it out in our lives in the same way. It says, please with us in flesh to dwell Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us. Even today, we get to see him. Even though they saw him face to face, we get to see all the effects of him coming down. And I told you one of my favorite Christmas movies is the Charlie Brown Christmas movie, but probably second to it or maybe equal to it is It's a Wonderful Life. Do you realize that movie is 75 years old this year? 75 years old this year. You, you look at the little kids that are singing in there and stuff like that, and you're like, man, they might even all have passed on already. As crazy as it is to even think about. But if you know about the It's a Wonderful Life, the question came to my mind is this. What if Jesus had never come and put on flesh? What if he had never been born? The whole movie of It's a Wonderful Life is George Bailey struggling with, why was I born in the first place? And then the angel pulls him away and says, well, let's see what the life of this world would look like. And, and uh, Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville. And as it becomes Pottersville, it becomes a cruel and dark place. Imagine for me just for a moment what this world would look like if Jesus had never come. You think Pottersville was a cruel and dark place? I'm pretty sure every place would be that. We would not have seen the glory of God. We'd still be under some law, doing some sacrificial system. We've been doing in our house the, the words or the names of Jesus, 24 names of Jesus leading up to Christmas, and yesterday was our Lamb of God. And it was such a, just a, a powerful word to, to hear Christy reading about the, the Lamb of God and just getting to, to, to soak it in and receive the truth that we don't have to live under a sacrificial system because the Lamb of God was provided for you and for me. And how amazing that is. I, I began to think if that Lamb of God hadn't have come, there'd be no followers of His to share the good news of His because there was no good news to share in the first place. How dark would this world look? What would the world look like without Jesus in it? But even more so, let me ask you this question. What would your life look like if Jesus was not in it? What would your life look like if Jesus had never come into your life and changed you? And maybe here's even a better question. Does your life look differently right now because Jesus is in it? Does your life look differently because Jesus is in it? Does your life look different than those without Jesus? See, today we're going to be talking about that very fact. 
Does your life look different with Jesus in it? And we're going to be talking about that as we look at the book of 1 John today. And 1 John is full, 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 full of so much information that even as we've been doing this gospel project and taking this grand overview of the books as we cruise through them, I couldn't get it all in an overview. We're literally only going to be able to do the first one and a half chapters in overview today. And I'm going to encourage you today and throughout this week to read those five chapters, maybe Monday through Friday, do one, two, three, four, and five, and look deeper into the amazingness of what John is challenging us with about what's to come and what we're dealing with even in our lives today. We're going to be focusing on 2, 3 through 6 today, and as we do, uh, I would love for you to open your Bibles there. As you're opening your Bibles there, I want to refer back to our opening video for just a second. That video of Linus sharing the birth of Jesus. And if you're a Peanuts fan, you know that, that many of the characters within the Peanuts comic strip have some very specific things that are about them. Linus, you know what it is? It's his blanket. It's his blanket. And, and throughout almost all of Peanuts, he's got his blanket. He's always got it there with him. He's always got his, his thumb close by, and, and he uses it for comfort. And there's many episodes of comic strips. There's many episodes of actual uh, ca uh, cartoons that they try and get Linus to put down his blanket, and he won't. He won't do it until, until you read this strip. Let me read for you what he read from the King James Version, okay? This is what it says. From Luke chapter 2, he reads and says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's a subtle thing, but on the words, fear not, Linus lays down his blanket. It's a subtle thing that, that most people miss, and, and something that I've missed for a long, long time, and maybe this is the first time you're thinking about it, like, oh yeah, he did. He lays down his blanket as he says the word fear not, as if Charles Schultz, who wrote the comic, was saying, here's the message in it all. There is something else you can cling to rather than the things of this world. There is Jesus Christ who you can hold on to for your security, for your life, what to live for. Instead of the things of this world, you can lay this down because the birth of Jesus is that big. And not just the birth of Jesus, but the eventual death, burial, and resurrection. It gives us a new security. We don't have to hold on to our security blankets anymore. And as we see that, we'll see it today on full display in 1 John. It's exactly what John is trying to tell us. And as you know, we've been going, like, through, like I said, through this gospel project, and we're taking these big views, so I'm going to encourage you once again to read that. But as we look at 1 John, you'll see 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation that we'll be talking about here in a couple of weeks, and hopefully not living out in a couple of weeks, but at least talking about in a couple of weeks, are all written by the same guy who wrote the gospel of John. John, one of the followers of Jesus, one of the sons of thunder, the, the brother to the apostle James. And, you know, I was thinking about this John, that as he writes, he writes quite a bit different than Paul writes. 
We've been focused on Acts and a lot of the different epistles that kind of came through that story of Acts and seeing the church grow and Paul speak into it. Paul writes with a very specific way in mind and John also writes with a very specific way in mind. And John, I would have to say, is a little bit more upfront. He might even be a little bit more in your face. Last week, I actually used the words, hey, you should come and be refreshed. We talked about Philemon and how great Philemon was for refreshing the saints. And I said, I hope that you come in here and get refreshed. After I practiced with Christy last night, she's like, wow, that was heavy. I'm like, yeah, it kind of went from getting refreshed to getting kicked into shorts. So uh, just, just prepare yourself for that today because First John is in your face. But even as I looked at that, I started thinking, what makes it that way? What makes the difference between Paul and John and how they write? Well, Paul, he lived a different type of life. Jesus came to him in a different type of way than what John experienced. One of the things I thought about, if you remember back when we were going through the book of Acts, the book of Acts said that the first martyr for, of the apostles was James, John's brother. And I began to think when John wrote this, a lot of his other friends had probably been martyred along the way as well. My guess is, kind of similar to when Adam got up here and shared about the Gaborim, he got up here and shared about the Solcon, and then Bob followed up and said, hey, don't be a wimpy Christian man. Step up and do something. My guess is that John had a real issue with wimpy Christian men and wimpy Christian women saying, my brother and my friends died for this. Don't you dare make this less than it is. And I think that's how he writes. From that perspective, from his heart. I mean, if my brother had died, I wouldn't want people to take it lightly. I want them to see how serious it really is that my brother didn't die for nothing. As a matter of fact, he goes on to make points right away. He tells you why he's writing. If you read the book of John, at the end of the book of John, John chapter 20, verse 31, he actually says, this is why I'm writing to you. As a matter of fact, he says, but these are written so that you may believe in Jesus the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by, by believing, you may have life in his name. He says, this is the purpose, that you would believe in Jesus Christ. If you go to the book of Revelation, he doesn't wait to the end of the book. He tells you right up front. Jesus tells him, he records it, he tells us. In verse 19 of chapter 1, it says, Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And you know what John does? Exactly that. But in 1 John, he writes a little bit different in his points. As a matter of fact, he gives us four points of why I'm writing you this letter. In the first couple of verses we'll read as we look at today in verse 4 of chapter 1 he says I want you to have joy I want to promote joy in the family of God in verse chapter 2 uh, verse 1 he says I'm writing this to prevent you from sinning within the family of God in verse 26 of chapter 2 he says I'm protecting the families of God from false teachers and then if you get into the end of verse chapter 5 he says I'm writing this to you for the assurance of your salvation so that you may know that you know. There's a lot in 1 John. Like I said, too much for us to even cover in an overview. 105 verses, but if you want to make it quick and to the point, I think it's this. John was, I want you to know that you can believe, that you may believe. In 1 John, it is, I want you to know that you know that you believe. I want you to hold on to that. Too many people question their salvation. Too many question who God is. Could he really love somebody like me? I want you to know that you know. So my question for you is, 
as we dive into this, do you really know? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you believe? Do you not just believe like in a I believed in Santa Claus kind of believe? It was, do you truly put your trust and faith and believe in the Son of God? Do you believe he is who he says he is? Do you believe that he did what the Bible says he did? Do you believe he's going to do what he says he's going to do as we dive into the book of Revelation in a couple of weeks? See, the reason why I asked that question and I reiterated it so much this morning is we have to understand that Christianity stands and falls on the truth of Jesus Christ. Christianity stands and falls. It all hinges on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus Christ really put on flesh? Did he really become the lamb that was slain on my behalf so I would be considered righteous by the God of the universe? Because I can't have that righteousness on my own. Is Jesus really the Lord? Or we can take from what C.S. Lewis talks about when he says, was Jesus Lord, lunatic, liar, or just a legend? Was he just a lunatic that had a bunch of crazy followers that were willing to lay down their lives for him even still today? Was he a liar that was able to manipulate the truth and really get people to believe and drink the Kool-Aid of that type of thing? Or was he just a legend that has grown over time? You have to make that decision. You have to trust in him or not. What you believe about Jesus matters. And even more so, not just what you believe, how it affects your life and changes your life matters. Do you really know that Christmas and every other day after it is all about Jesus and is the evidence of that belief in your life? Can people see Jesus in you? First John, he was writing to a whole bunch of people who were struggling about who Jesus was and how to live accordingly because there was these false teachers that were coming in and trying to distract and destroy who Jesus was. They, they believed this belief called Gnosticism, and Gnosticism was that, that all matter was sin. Anything within the body was sin. Anything that was real and tangible was sin. Well, when Jesus put on flesh, that make, would make him that way. So they tried to say, obviously, Jesus didn't really come down. So there was a whole lot of teaching that was going on inside the church, and they were really struggling with it. So, so once again, John, to the point, tells them this. So if you have your Bibles open, I'd like to go through 1 John chapter 1 and into 1 John chapter 2 as we look at it and says these words. What was from the beginning? You'll see a parallel here between John chapter 1 and 1 John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we will observe and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That word became flesh in 1 John 1.14. That life was revealed, made real in the flesh. We could see it. It was tangible. And we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father. Again, Jesus, eternal, from the beginning. Not like the beginning of a point in time, but always has been. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's eternal, not some flash-in-the-pan religious nut. Not some liar or lunatic. It goes on and says, and he was revealed to us. We've seen him again. He's not some legend. He's right here in front of us. Verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with 
the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, we proclaim this gospel message that you may become a part of the family of God. Fellowship with us. Fellowship and connect. And this fellowship goes beyond just, hey, we're going to have some dinner in the fellowship hall kind of fellowship. This is a relationship kind of fellowship, a common life kind of fellowship. More than even just a connection group on Thursday. This is us doing life together because we believe in the same thing. We have the same goal. And that goal and purpose of our life is to glorify God, we tell you these things for that reason. Verse 4, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Where do you find your joy? If you go through the Advent season, you probably know that we haven't really followed that to the traditional way this year. We've done it in the past. But as you look at it and as you see it, one of them is joy and peace and love and hope. But that joy, what gives you that joy at Christmas time? Is it knowing that, that kids are going to be opening up presents under the Christmas tree, or is it knowing that your kids and yourself have opened up the gift that was given to us through Jesus Christ to have eternal life in a relationship with God? That's why we sing joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Did you know that was actually originally an Easter song? That's more about the second coming than it is about the first coming but we've tied it into the first coming as well. We get to receive our king. Verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. By the way, that's a little, I'm dropping some authority on you because I heard this from God, so I'm throwing it onto you. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. He is the perfect being. Verse six, if we say, if we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. Now, there's a whole message in this verse by itself, okay? So I'm going to do my best to wrap it up in a nutshell. And the little nutshell version is going to sting just a little bit. So I'm giving you that kick in the shorts, pre-warning, pre okay? Here it is. The first thing is there's people within the church and maybe within this room that claim to have a relationship with God, but they don't. They don't. It's, it's just plain and simple. That's what he's saying here. They're lying. They're not saved. We'll get more to that later. There are people within the church also that claim to have fellowship with God, but they are living in a pattern or a lifestyle of living in darkness. They're not walking with him. That's a problem. John says right up front, you might think you have a relationship with God, but you're a liar. I mean, that, those are stinging words to read. That's a lot different than the way that Paul took care of business. Again, we'll look at it more later. Verse seven, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Another verse, an entire sermon could be about. But here's some questions that come from it. Are you walking in obedience to Christ and his commands? Are you open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to change in your life? You know, Adam, he was in here. I know he popped out. But when he got up here and shared, like he said, he's like, I don't speak in front of people. I've known Adam a long time. And I've seen his life radically changed in the last three, four months that he's been doing this Gaborum, this Solcon. And it's amazing to see it and for him to tell me about it. He was always very held back. Didn't want to say, hey, this is where I struggle at. But he got up here and actually said, my life was a mess until for him to say that out loud just blew me away. I was standing back there going, yes. Because God got in a hold of him. And his whole family and everything is changed because of it. His family, his brother, his brother-in-law, all people are being affected by it. That's what 1 John is about. He's saying, hey, how is this working? Because if the answers are 
yes, I am walking in obedience to Christ, you're going to see the results. And other people are going to see the results. It's a part of the family of God and, and that fellowship and the commonality that we're talking about, we're going to see the difference in our lives. There is a cleansing from our daily sin. We fall short. We know that. We all do. As a matter of fact, John's going to go into it as he continues writing. But the difference here is, is that when we fall short, we don't celebrate it. We repent. We lay ourselves out and say, God, I have missed the mark, but thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who didn't. And I struggle to know, but I do know that Jesus is my Savior. You know, the more I talk to Christians who have been Christians a long time, so many times they say the same thing. The longer I've been a Christian, the greater my knowledge of knowing that I need a Savior has become. How far have I missed? Because when I first, I'm like, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need to go to heaven, so I probably should. Now it's like, no, I am a sinner. And I fall short. And I fall short regularly. As a matter of fact, that's why John says it next. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, verse 8, and the truth is not in us. Guys, like I said, I'm, I'm a sinner. And I can tell you this, I've been saved by the grace of God and I'm being changed on a regular daily basis, but I am far from perfect and I know it. I am far from perfect and I know it. My wife knows it. My kids know it. My friends know it. But they also know that I am fully aware of my need for a Savior because I have no righteousness on my own. The next verse we see in the passage is one that you probably have memorized at some point in time if you grew up in the church and it says this, and I'm going to read it from the CSB, which is different than how I memorize it, so it's, I have to actually read it. This is if we confess our sins, he is faithful, and my version always said just, this says righteous, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. See, to confess means to say the same as. When we confess our sins, we are willing to say and believe the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. See, how God sees our sin is not like, well, it's not too bad. Yes, it is. That's how God sees our sins. And when we confess, we come and say, I am a sinner. If you go to the book of Luke chapter 18, you're going to see Jesus talking about two different people. One, a Pharisee who gets up and he confesses that he's not as bad as that guy. And then there's the man who is that guy, the tax collector that says, I am a sinner, God, and I am in need of a Savior. Who's the one that actually confessed? That's what Jesus is laying out in Luke 18. He says, no, the one who confessed is the one who is recognizing their sin and understanding that they need to be fixed. And the only fix is Jesus Christ. And the thing is, is it says we confess our sins. That's a present tense thing. It's not like a once. I did it when I was a little kid. I confessed my sins. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I'm all good. This is a present tense thing because it's a constant reminder of who I am, but even more so, who God is. And who is God? Well, that verse also tells us that he is faithful, that he is righteous, that he is just to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. See, when we come before before him in a manner of being completely honest because we can't lie to God anyway, you know? But when we come before him in such a way, he knows and he's ready to work on us to make us more like him. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I haven't sinned. Well, if you haven't sinned, you don't need any savior. 
if you just think you're out for a swim in that giant ocean and you're not drowning in your sin, then, then it doesn't, doesn't really matter. And that's why he says, you're calling God a liar. What do we need to be saved from if we haven't sinned? On to chapter 2, he says these words. My little children, I'm writing you these things so you may not sin. Obviously, God's desire, we don't sin. Our desire should be that we don't sin. Remember, we've been talking about this fight, the good fight. That's part of the fight, and the good fight of faith is striving after Jesus and not after our own fleshly desires. But the next part of that verse says what? But if anyone does sin. <laughs> John, so funny. <laughs> if anyone does sin, we have this advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's stepping in on our behalf. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This verse, these two verses, they, they really speak for themselves. I don't need to break them down, but please don't just read over them and pass over them as if they're just more words on a page. These are very important words on our page. These are words that speak directly to us, and we let it soak in that we have an advocate, a righteous advocate at that, one who has stepped into our place and died for our sins. Do we know it? Do we live it? Do we know him and the power that he has? And the next question is, is how do you know that you know? How do you know that you know? Verse 3 points to it. This is how we know. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet does not keep his commands, there's that word again, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. Know this, when someone becomes a Christian, their lives are changed. Their relationship to sin changes. Sin's not eliminated until they become a, 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 on the other side, let's call it that, until they reach glory. But their relationship, sorry, their relationship to sin changes when they truly become a Christian. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says this, the Christian no longer loves sin. It is the object of his sternest horror. He no longer regards it as mere trifle, plays with it, or talks of it with unconcern. Sin is dejected in the Christian's heart, though it's not ejected sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion but it cannot sit upon the throne john actually goes on to write about this a little bit more just in a couple of verses down if you jump from where we're at in verse 5 to verse 15 it says this do not love the world or the things of this world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for everything in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life or the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Why does he say that? Because those are the things that destroy the relationship between us and God. They ruin the fellowship between us and God. They, they really get in the way of that whole first commandment thing when God said right up front, don't have any other gods or idols before me. Get that junk out. And we go on and on about the rest of the book and all the things that John has to say. But there's a verse that I skipped over as I jumped down to verse 15. And I think it's one that, that really helps us in our fight as we continue to fight that fight 
of, of the faith, that, that, that good fight, as we, we press on, as we've talked about recently, is verse 6, and it says this. Well, I'll read verse 5 at the end where it says, this is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him, the one who says he abides in him, the one who says he lives in him, depending upon your translation, should walk just as Jesus walked. Those are tough words. Walk as Jesus walked. What does it mean? Does it mean walk on water? No. It means imitate Jesus' everyday walk with God the Father. What did his walk with God the Father look like? The spiritual evidence flowed, the, the power flowed from a faithful, regular, disciplined life of fellowship and obedience. Now, fellowship we already talked about, but that word obedience. Obedience. What about obedience? Doesn't that word just kind of strike a little fear in you? What if we added some effects to my microphone? Craig, can you do that? And as I say the word, obedience. I mean, when you really stop and think about obedience, we think, oh, I'm in trouble. I have to do this. I have to fall in line. Is that the obedience that, that Christ is talking about, that, that, that John is challenging us to follow into? I mean, it's a tough word, but it's exactly how Jesus lived. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. We'll get back to Paul here. As he wrote to that church at Philippi, he says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited or something to be grasped, something to be held onto. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, putting on that flesh. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming what? Obedience. That's right. Yeah, sorry, I didn't, didn't, didn't give you that heads up. He became obedient even to death on a cross. There are multiple verses that tell us about becoming obedient. We need to understand that obedience really truly is an essential part of the Christian faith. For Christians, the act of taking up your cross and following Jesus as he commanded in Luke chapter 9, that is an act of obedience. The Bible shows that we show our love for Jesus by obeying him and the word in there is all things. We obey him in all things. John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. A Christian who's not obeying Christ's commandments, Jesus can ask him the same question that he asked in Luke chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Those are stinging, hard questions. Those are ones that penetrate right to our heart and sometimes we just... It's okay, I'll just read the parts of the Bible about love that I like. I'll just read the parts about that, giving and, and things like that, that that I like, and I'm going to skip the things that, that apply a little bit harder and hurt just a little bit more to look at. See, obedience is defined as dutiful or submissive compliance to the commands of the one in authority. Dutiful or submissive compliance to the commands of the one in authority. What does that mean from a biblical standpoint? Well, gotquestions.org, one of my favorite places to go and check out things, uh, actually answers that. It says the word dutiful. It means our obligation to obey God. Just as Jesus fulfilled his every duty to the Father by dying on the cross for our sins, we're to do the same thing. Submissive. It indicates 
that we yield our will to God's will. Commands, speaks of, in Scripture of what God has clearly delineated in His instructions, what it's clearly told us to do. And the one authority, well, that's God Himself because His authority is complete. For the Christian, obedience means complying with everything that God has commanded. It is literally our duty to do so, to walk as Jesus walked. God commands us to obey, but not because He's on some crazy power trip. Not because he wants to put our thumb on us and hold us down, but it's because he wants what's best for us. It's like I've never complained to the highway department on why they put guardrails in. They want me to stay on the road, not drive off into a ditch, right? And the whole idea that God has given us guardrails is to keep us from driving off into a ditch. God commands us not to kill our fun, but actually to increase our enjoyment. I mean, what did he say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4? I write these things to make your joy complete. That is why we do what we do. And you know what? We've driven off in ditches before, haven't we? Maybe not literally, hopefully. But we have slid off the road, and we know the consequences of our disobedience. But let me ask you this question. Do you know the consequences of your obedience? Do you know the consequences of your obedience? Well, in 1 John, verses 3 through 6, I think he gives us four consequences for our obedience. And this is what it says. First one is this. Obedience proves our salvation. Now, before you jump on me, let me explain that, okay? So this is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. John is saying that not only can we know God, we can know that we know God. We can know that we know God. And let me be very clear. He's not saying, how does one become a Christian? He's not saying, you have to do this in order to become a Christian. We receive Christ by faith. We receive Christ by faith. But he is saying that how do you know that you've received Christ? Well, it manifests itself in the way that you live. It manifests itself in your obedience. We know we know him because we want to keep his commands. He's not saying that this salvation is conditional on obedience, but instead he's teaching that salvation is evidence of obedience or evidenced by obedience. We see it in that. And that obedience then contributes to our assurance of salvation. It gives us that assurance that we're living not just any way, but his way. Second thing is, is obedience transforms our lives. Verse 4 says, the one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. His point, if you claim to know God, but your life isn't changed by knowing him, that's a pretty good sign that maybe you don't know him. That maybe you just didn't like hell, so you accepted Jesus for a, a fire insurance type of thing instead of a life-changing savior type of thing. He is saying that the person who does not keep God's commands doesn't have the truth in him. Why? Well, because the truth of God will turn your life upside down. The truth of God will change you. The truth of God will transform you. The truth of God will fill your life. It will fill your belly with a fire and a desire to live for him. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Obedience leads to that changed life, and that changed life leads to obedience. The third thing we see, obedience comes from our love. As a matter of fact, that's what I titled this message, Obedience from Love. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. 
verse 5. John takes it from just obey the commands to obey his word. Well, what was his word? What's the word that we saw in John chapter 1? What's the word that we see in 1 John chapter 1? The word is Christ. The word is Christ, and we obey Christ, not because we have to, but because we love him. And why do we love him? Because he first loved us. And our lives show that. Our lives are lived out in that way. He sacrificed himself on a cross for me. He gave his life for me. All he's asking me to do is live my life for him. Do we struggle with that? Absolutely. But as we grow and as we change, our desire to live for ourselves will change along with it. Fourth thing, obedience characterizes our walk. 1 John 2, 1, Jesus Christ was called the righteous one. He's called our advocate. And then he wrote, this is how we are to know him. Whoever claims to be in him, remains to be in him, lives in him, must walk as Jesus walked. How do we walk in righteousness? It's not on our own. We can't. It has to be in Christ. Are you living in Christ? I wrote this down. I was thinking, if John was what it seems like, if he's a son of thunder, he got that name from Jesus for a reason. He's kind of in your face. And as you write, you see this in your face. If, if somebody came to John and said, well, I know Jesus. I, I think his response would probably go something like this. Good. But do you actually know him? Are you in him? Are you abiding in him? Are you walking like Christ? Are you living like Christ? Because we can know him. There's lots of historical figures that I know about. But if he's going to make an impact on my life, I have to know him deeper than that. I think he would truly ask, Jesus lived in obedience to the Father. And we're supposed to be walking as Jesus walked. So are you living in obedience to the Father. Do we walk as Jesus walked? You've probably heard the saying before, actions speak louder than words, right? I think it applies here. Actions speak louder than words. Do our actions show that we are living for Christ? When I was a, a teenager, maybe you guys remember this uh, kind of thing circulating around. It's been around for a while, but it was the whole question of if, if it was illegal to follow Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict you of a crime? That was a tough question. That's a tough one to actually go with. Do we walk as Jesus walks? If we do, yes, it will absolutely be enough. I'm going to close with this. One of my favorite books in recent memory was a life-changing book for me. It was a book called Radical by David Platt. You may have read it. We did a Bible study on it. But it just that one spoke to me probably on a different level than any other book that I've ever read other than maybe the Bible itself. But this is what David Platt said at the very beginning. He says, I was confronted with a startling reality. Jesus actually spurned the things that my church culture said were most important. So what was I to do? I found myself faced with two big questions. The first was simple. Was I going to believe Jesus? Was I going to embrace Jesus even though he said radical things that drove crowds away? The second was more challenging. Was I going to obey Jesus? My biggest fear, even now, is that I will hear Jesus' words and walk away content to settle for less than radical obedience to him. That was the beginning of the first chapter. The end of the first chapter, he writes this. First, from the outset, you need to commit to believe what Jesus says. 
As a Christian, it would be a grave mistake to come to Jesus and say, let me hear what you have to say, and then I'll decide whether to like it or not. If you approach Jesus this way, you will never truly hear what he has to say. You'll have to say yes to the words of Jesus before you even hear them. The second, you need to commit to obey to what you have heard. The gospel does not prompt you to mere reflection. The gospel requires a response. Did you hear that? Let me read it for you again. The gospel does not prompt you to mere reflection. The gospel requires a response. In the process of hearing Jesus, you are compelled to take an honest look at your life, an honest look at your family, and an honest look at your church, and not just ask, what is he saying, but also, what shall I do? So I truly believe this message this morning was an important one that, that God has spoken to me and hopefully passed on to you for two reasons. Number one, I think it's important because people who profess to be Christians but aren't living in according to his word and have no deep desire to do so need to get right with God. Whether they're the board backslidden comes into mind from my church upbringing or whether they are just not a part of the family to begin with. They need to experience God's grace. You might be a part of that day. You might need to be a part of that day, and you might need to get your heart right with God. We don't need to be cleaned up and made to look better in church. We need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The second part is this. Some people, I think, really wrestle with a lack of assurance because there's imperfections in their lives. I already told you, I am a sinner. I have imperfections in my lives. Do you ever think anything different because I'm up here giving the message and you're not? Please, throw that notion away. But the reality is, is this. When we live and we celebrate it, it's different than we live and we repent of it and just ask God to not bring it back into our lives. That, that is my challenge for you today. Our salvation isn't based on how well we follow the commandments, but it sure is an evidence of how well we do it and how much we understand who God is and when we break it, how much it breaks our hearts that so we're breaking God's hearts. I would challenge you today to do this. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, let us throw aside all the sin that so easily entangles us and keeps us from running the race, keeps us from fighting the fight. Lay down the sin. Lay down the things that we cling to, that blanket, whatever security thing that is. I'm not sure if you're also aware of that in the end of that movie. It's the second time that Linus lays down his blanket. You know where he puts it? At the foot of the tree. I don't know if Charles Schultz had a message in that as well, but it sure spoke to me when I saw it, as we need to lay our things down at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the tree that our Savior died on. What things do you have to lay down? What things are you holding on to? Can I just challenge you today to get yourself out of the way and walk as Jesus walked? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today, and thank you for the message that you brought through John, so many years ago, a message that we can hold on to, a message that we can relate to. But God, it's a message of, of a little bit of a sting. It hurts just a little bit. It hurts my pride. It hurts my ego. It hurts my desire to live the life I want to live. But even as you spoke, even through David Platt and his book, Radical, the, the gospel is something that we don't just ponder. It's something we have to respond to. So God, I'm going to challenge the people in here, and I pray the Holy Spirit's already working in hearts to respond to the gospel. Whether it be for the first time, 
to respond by giving their lives to you? Whether it be for a second time, something they did maybe when they were a kid, but their lives have not shown any evidence of it. And maybe it's just something where they're really struggling with, how could God possibly love me? We know, God, that you came and died for all sin, not just the good sins. And if there's people in here that are struggling with that, God, may they be reminded of your goodness and your graciousness and the fact that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just, that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we praise you today. Praise you all in your name. Amen. I'm going to... I'm going to do something different today. I'm going to ask you to come forward. Normally I say, hey, I'm going to be over here off to the side. You can slide over here. I'm going to ask you to come forward. And if you're able, get on your knees before God. And just confess. Like I said, it's an ongoing thing. It's not something that you did once. It's It's a present tense confess. If you can get on your knees, do it. If not, you can sit in the chairs right here. But just come before God. And the reason why I'm going to ask you to come forward is is for this reason, for accountability. Because somebody else can come alongside you and they can pray with you. Somebody else can come alongside you and they can lift you up. Somebody else can come alongside you and they can walk with you. Because that's the whole idea of soul con, is to have a brother to walk with you. But maybe you need somebody to walk with you and challenge you and hold you accountable and lift you up in prayer. I'm going to open that up during this last song.